You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 33 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And this week we have Flinder Boyd, former Great Britain international, you know, 10-year I don't know, 10, 11 year pro. I should know that, shouldn't I? Having just done an interview with him. Um, and someone who I've built a good relationship with over the years. Um, I was really happy to get him on. He's now uh, he's now writing, uh, which you, you hear a little bit about, you hear him speak a little bit about. Um, I first came across a blog that he wrote on the side uh, back in 2008, 2009-ish, um, whilst he was involved with Great Britain, which we speak about uh, in depth as well. But uh, yeah, it was a, one of my favourite conversations, actually, I feel like Finder is super open, uh, super honest, super thoughtful and um, gave really good insight into his time, in particular with the Great Britain programme, which is where we focused on. Uh, of course, he he stayed involved with the programme and almost continued his, his professional career uh, with an eye on the London 2012 Olympics, but uh, kind of injuries caught up with him and he ended up retiring um, and not playing at London 2012, and so he speaks a little bit about that. And of course, the transition uh, from going from being a professional basketball player to retiring, and how that's been uh, mentally as a challenge. So, yeah, I think there's uh, a lot of really interesting things that we discussed. Uh, I would love to hear what you think about it. Drop me an email, sam at hoopsfix.com. Uh, I'm on all the social media profiles at hoopsfix. Uh, as always, would love to hear from you, as well as any suggestions for future guests that you would like to hear from. If you have a moment, please drop us a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, and if you do enjoy the episode, please share it with your friends. Um, that does us a great service in helping it spread far and wide, which is one of the reasons why we're doing this, to help spread the word. So your help would be much appreciated. Um, so yeah, I will leave you here. Here is my conversation with Flinda. Honoured to be here with former GB International Flinder Boyd. Flinder, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, as I was saying before we start recording, I'd love to focus around um, the GB stuff. But I think before we get into that, it's worth talking about uh, being a retired basketball player. You know, you retired in 2012. So it's been, was it around 2012-ish that you retired? So it's been uh, four or five years. I feel like that's flown by. Um, how has the transition been from you into playing and kind of doing what you're doing now and explain to us a little bit about what you're doing now yeah i guess first what i'm doing now i'm i'm like a sports journalist uh particularly kind of uh longer features uh, i started um freelancing then i was doing stuff for fox sports here in the u.s uh i also was doing a little bit of stuff in, in the uk for bt sport um and then for the last year i've been working for bleach report here in the u.s so yeah, it was a it was an interesting transition. I didn't really have a plan when I retired. Uh, I went back to school for a year in London, and I studied. Uh, I got a master's in geography. Didn't didn't really know what I was going to do with that. It was more just to kill time till I till I figured out what I wanted to do next. I knew I didn't really want to coach or, you know, if I wanted to stay in in sports or basketball, it didn't it wasn't going to be in the the normal kind of uh, normal ways that uh, a lot of people do just because I think I kind of uh, was over just was over basketball at that time 2012 I just had done it almost 10 years professionally that I just I was ready for something else 
I just didn't know exactly what it was going to be. And I almost kind of stumbled into writing. Um, I, uh, I guess when I got hurt playing probably about 2010, I had a girlfriend at the time who told me, you know, you're, 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 you're always telling me all these stories. Why don't you start a blog? So I started a blog, which I think you, you remember, Sam, yeah. called I, yeah. wish, I Wish I Was a Little Bit Taller, which didn't really have a point. It was just a bunch of funny stories I'd sit down and write from my playing career every once a week, once every other week. Um, that was just a, a way to, 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 to do something. Um, but I really liked it. I really liked writing. So the 2008, 2009, I was hurt for a lot of that time, and I just sat down and wrote a book about my first year playing overseas, kind of like a fictionalized version of, of what actually happened, just to have something to do. And I didn't do anything with the book. It's just in a drawer. But as I was, as I was kind of figuring out what I was going to be doing, I kept coming back to writing. So I just started sending out articles for, for free to different websites just just for something to do. I kind of went through this really long period of, of depression for about six months, nine months after I stopped playing and didn't didn't have any any real direction because your whole life you're looking forward to the next game the next season um so i guess writing was was something that i could kind of cling on to that i really liked See, um, i always assumed that the the blog was actually because you always had an eye on a writing career uh, as opposed to it was just a, a fun thing to do um which you know, it's no surprise that now you're you're doing the things you're doing. Because I always, it was actually a friend. I, I I remember it like a friend forwarded me the blog, and it was like, oh, have you seen this? Like this GB player, this this blogging, and I, and I hadn't. And there was always there's you know stories about um about Rubio in there, and and uh, and kind of your experiences being uh, with with British basketball. So it's fascinating. But I always thought that was part of the wider plan. But you're saying that actually um, you you weren't set on writing, and and that's just kind of what you ended up going in that direction after after retiring? Yeah, I mean, I, I never really thought, like, okay, I could make a career from writing these stories, right? I, I never really thought about it like that. It was just something to do, something that was that was fun to do to pass the time. Um, it really wasn't until after I'd been retired for at least about nine months where I, I, I wrote something for free for a website here in the States about Ricky Rubio, Um that people kind of took to, and I thought, oh, maybe, maybe I could actually try this. Maybe I could, I could write another article and another one, and things slowly kind of took off. But I mean, at the time, I thought maybe, I'll, maybe I'll be a city planner, you know, a town planner. That's I like, I like, you know, that type of thing. I got my master's in something similar to that. Maybe I'll just do that. But then, as I was doing the master's, I realized I don't really like that. I don't really want to be at a desk. I think when you play basketball, it's hard to imagine. Just having a, that that kind of nine to five Monday through Friday life yeah. that, that a lot of people have. Do you feel like a not of, uh, not not enough athletes spend time thinking about what they're going to do after basketball? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, you know what's funny is, you know, I, I I played at GB. I traveled a lot. You know, I I kind of knew it someday. I'm going to have to figure it out. Um. But nobody ever tells you that you're going to go through this long period of adjustment because essentially when you stop playing basketball, it's like a loss of identity. That's yeah. who you are for so long is I am a basketball player. I am an athlete. you know. And, and you get so used to this rhythm of looking forward to the next game, looking forward to the next season, that when you actually finish playing, it's just a, such a shock to your system. And I think you, know, you have to prepare for it. I, I don't think 
people realize how much you have to prepare for it. But even if you're prepared for it, it's still such a jolt. You know, you're not really sure where to turn or what to do, especially guys who end up playing in Europe who are traveling around so much. Every nine months, they're in a new city. It's it's a really difficult transition. So it's, it took me, man, it took me a good, you know, I don't know, three years, really, till I really started feeling comfortable, like, okay, my life is back on track. I, I know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm in a new career. It was really hard to let go of that. I'm an athlete. I'm a basketball player. You yeah. know, idea. Do, do you feel like now, uh, do you miss it at all now, or are you kind of just completely over it? Um, I miss a lot of things about it. I miss the, the competitiveness that you get. Um, I miss that camaraderie, the travel. I miss the structure of it. Um, but actually, like, playing, I, I don't really miss it that much anymore. I mean, honestly, I played maybe once in the last year. I just don't really miss the, the actual playing of it. Did you, did you uh, expect to have a professional basketball career uh, coming out of college, especially one that you know, lasted a decade? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, when I was a junior in, in college, you know, my, my, you know, my, my dad is British. I had a British passport. Yeah. Um, so when I was a junior in college, we did a tournament in Portugal for two weeks. And I loved it. And I had so much fun. And I just... I knew with a British passport it was going to be easier for me to try and play in Europe. And I thought, if I can come out here and play two years, you know, what a great experience that would be. It would be fun. And then I'll move on with my life. And I went out and I played one year and two years, and it became three and four. And even after four or five years, I thought, okay, I'm going to stop playing in a year or two and move on. And then I started playing for GB, and that was probably the most fun I, I had my whole career was playing for GB. Um, and building towards 2012 and trying to get to 2012 that I just figured, man, I might as well give this a shot to try and make it to 2012, so to the Olympics. So I, I, ended, I ended up going almost 10 years. Wow. The, the, um, so the, the British Basketball Connection, you mentioned there, so it's your, it's your dad that's British. Uh, for you growing up, you grew up in California. Um, do you still have family in the UK? Were you, was kind of... Did you identify a lot with being British as well? Kind of, uh, what was your, well, what is your perception of your, your link to your Britishness? Yeah, well, my, um, my dad's family, they're all in, in Britain, um, scattered around outside London, Norfolk, uh, Hertfordshire, a little, you know. Um, so I guess growing up, I, I, I didn't really identify as British. I think I went to England three or four times growing up. It probably wasn't until I started playing in Europe and then I'd go spend time in London and spend time with my family and try and connect that way that I began to feel more and more British. And then probably when I actually started playing for the team, that's when I started to feel that connection. And then, of course, when I retired, I, I ended up living in London for a few years Yeah. just because I, I loved it out there and I, I felt more of a connection there. So uh, the call from... GB to represent uh, internationally. When do you remember when that came? Who did it come from, and kind of how they discovered you? Yeah, I got an email from Chris Finch, who was our, you know, obviously our old coach. I was playing in Spain at the time. This was maybe around two thousand seven when they were getting the team together. the The Olympics had just been announced uh, about a year and a half earlier, um, or maybe it was about two thousand six. I got an email from him. Just asking first, you know, about my passport, about my father, 
uh, if it was something I had got before I was 18, because if, if I had got it after I was 18, then I would count, I wouldn't count as, as I would yeah. count as a naturalized player. Um, and then just inviting me to the camp. I think the first camp I went to was the one in Florida, which must have been 2007. Um, you know, and all the guy, you know, Sullivan and Betts and Archibald and uh, I guess I think Luau was probably there. All the guys were there. I really had no idea what to expect. I didn't, I, you know, I, I never heard of British basketball because there was no GB before that. It was, I think everybody was kind of figuring it out um, as, as they went along. Um, Chris Finch probably was, was the main one trying to figure out figure out what he had and, and if he could scrounge together enough talent that could actually compete, at least on a European level. Do you know how, how Chris found out about you? I, I have no idea. I mean, he, you know, it was a lot of us who were, not a lot of us, but a few of us who were Americans with British passports. Mike Lindsley was another one. Yeah. Um, obviously Nate, but, you know, Nate Nate played in Britain for a while. Um, yeah, there was another kid who, who was in college in the States who had a British passport. Um, so, no, I, I'm not sure. He must I mean, he probably went through every... You know, went on Eurobasket.com, looked through every team in Europe, mm. and tried to see who was British and who wasn't British. I mean, I, I imagine it was probably that painstaking of a process to try and identify talent. Yeah. How did you? Uh, one of the sort of the hot topics in the run-up to 2012 was this whole thing about plastic Brits, about you know Americans with passports, and it was, it's always been um, a thing that is discussed heavily in the BBL as well, because you know there's a lot of people that feel that. Uh, Americans are taking actual um, British players' spots who, who grew up and were raised and, and sort of uh, came through the system. You know, how how do you personally look at that um, and perceive it? Did you did you have any animosity towards you from fans or anyone? Uh, you know, be, having been raised in America, or or I'd be interested to hear kind of your perspective on it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably two different conversations. In, in the BBL versus on the GB team, because obviously the GB team there is there is one naturalized player. So if you are going to get these plastic Brits that are grow up outside that have British passports, you know, there's not that many of us. Um, but I know I never there was never any animosity. Nobody really ever said anything. I mean, I think some of that was just because there wasn't that many people who cared about British basketball early on, right? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, there might have been other players who, who held some anim animosity that they were missing out on spots on the team, but nothing was ever said to me. Um, yeah, it's an interesting conversation. You know, it's something, uh, you know, I write about sports out here, and it's something that, that, that the, the U.S. soccer team has been talking about pretty extensively. When, when Jurgen Klinsmann was the coach out here, you know, a lot of the players were, were German who had very minimal ties to the U.S., but maybe had a, a U.S. father, and a lot of people felt like they were taking spots away from, from American players. So, I, you know, I think for me, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think you have to find the best talent in whatever their, their links are. You know, I think that's fine, especially in the early days of, of TV. I think it was important to have the best possible players and the best team you could field. field to try and get people excited about GB and show that we compete. And that's going to birth, you know, more grassroots development and better players. I think um, there, 
probably come a point where um, GB will, will, will be a powerhouse, I hope, and, and that won't be an issue at all. I mean, in terms of the BBO, uh, I mean, I, I think it is important that there's enough British players that are British that are getting a chance to play. Um, I, I don't know what the quota is right now. I haven't really been following. That's I don't, you'd have to tell me soon. Yeah, well, there's a, you get there's a three you're allowed three imports, uh, American imports, and I think you're allowed one European as well. Um, but it mm-hmm. is that you know, like Newcastle Eagles are the team that always get criticised for it. For for um, I actually right. did, I did an interview with um, with Tony Garbaletto uh, the other day, and he was talking about the Eagles and just they just you know for a for a club that's kind of put up as the the model club in the in the professional league. Um, to not have as many British, well, basically have Darius Defoe as their, their, their one sort of real legitimate British guy um, as their shining light is just disappointing for him. Um, right. But, uh, but yeah, anyway. Um, so that, 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 first, uh, that first Florida training camp, can you remember kind of what the energy was like? You know, did it really feel like this is the start of something special, you know, with an eye on, on 2012 longer term? Kind of what was the energy like? What, was the, what were the players like? What were the relationships like? Can you kind of talk uh, about, about it a little bit? Yeah, I mean, remember at that time, it, it, we still weren't sure we were going to be allowed to compete in 2012. We weren't yeah. sure we were going to be allowed to compete in 2012 until, I don't know, 2010 maybe. Yeah. Because we, we had to prove that we were competitive enough that we could field a team, first of all, and then we were, we were competitive enough. We were just trying to, I think at that time, we were still in Division B, right? So we yeah. were just trying to to get up to, to, to Division A. Um, so I think there was a lot of excitement there. It wasn't like some of these teams, some of these national teams where guys are like, all right, I guess I'll do it if you're paying me enough money. I mean, there was, there was a lot of excitement, man. And there was guys that were, come, you know, playing in, in Greece and Russia and Belgium and you know, college kids, and then you had the NBA guys. I mean, I remember the, the first training camp was in Florida and just sitting around at, at dinner and everybody talking to each other, and there was just there was this real excitement that, that we could be, maybe not that we could be the special team because we just had no idea, but that we could, you know, we could do something that hadn't been done before. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like that... Um the kind of the being the underdogs, which no one had any type of expectation expectation of, uh, kind of ever, which I think is still the case with the GB team uh, today. Do you think that that helped in any way? Um, yeah, I, I think in the beginning, I, I don't know how much it helped because we just we had to prove to ourselves that we were actually good enough. Um, I think it came a time, uh, you know going into Eurobasket in 2009, our first time doing that, where being the underdog very much did help. The teams probably overlooked us, and we liked that label. We liked being the underdogs. Um, you know, we were kind of this group, this ragtag group that were made up of, of guys who were, you know, from all over, cobbling together this team, you know, with, with, with Chris Finch, who was at the time, I guess, coaching in Belgium. Um, so I think we, we like that identity a little bit of uh, being the, the, the ragtag, ragtag under, underdog group. When you headed into training camp, um, what were your expectations of the talent and kind of what was your, what was your knowledge of, of you know, other British basketball players uh, when, you first, when you first went to camp? Man, I really didn't have any, you know. I really had 
very little knowledge of, of, of British basketball. I hadn't played in the BBL then. I didn't know really any of those guys. Obviously, I knew the wow. Um, so I, I remember being pretty nervous playing that first time in, uh, in, in Florida training camp and just not really sure who these other guys were, not really sure, you know, wanting to prove myself, but also, you know, wanting to, you know, I, I was, there was a certain pecking order, you know, in these types of things. So I think everybody was trying to figure it out and find their place. Um, so I actually didn't, after that summer, I'm trying to remember now, after that summer, I think I made, I made the, I was like the last person to make the team. Um, but my coach in Spain wouldn't let me play on the British team because he, he didn't think it was like a serious team. You know, there was no British team. He didn't think it was like a serious endeavor. He wouldn't let me play. So I ended up not playing uh, that first summer. Um, so I missed some, some of the, the better stories of the guys traveling to Belarus and all over. So was the, the first summer that you actually uh, played games, was that the 2008 qualifiers for the 2009 Eurobasket? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So then, the when you got into camp and kind of, you know, you said you, you didn't have a lot of knowledge. Were you uh, about British basketball players and kind of the, the other people that were going to be at camp and stuff? Were you um, like, what was your perception of the level of talent that was on display? Were you were you pleasantly surprised? Uh, you know, how confident were you of your own abilities going in? And then when you started playing, um, you know, how much did you feel? Okay, I've got a pretty good shot at being a good part of this team for the years to come. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, yeah, I was surprised actually. I was I was very surprised, you know, when I especially you know especially then we had a lot of really great forwards, you know. Um, our our guards were probably a little more lacking, which which gave me the confidence that I might actually make the team. But I didn't, you know, I was probably just happy to be there. You know, I didn't think that I'm going to be on this for years to come, and um, I'm I'm going to keep stay with it and try and make 2012. Like I was just. I think I was just really happy to be there and be doing something different. I didn't really have a lot of expectations. And I don't know of anybody. I mean, it seems so far off. 2012, playing in Eurobasket at the time just seems so far off that even though Chris Finch would mention it, it, it just seemed like this this magical fairy tale land somewhere in the in the future. I think everybody was just really happy just to be there and, and starting to build this sort of British basketball identity. And in terms of your own personal relationships with the guys, did you feel like you got on well and you kind of, did you form uh, friendships that are still going on today? Yeah, I mean, everybody, I remember, you know, I remember after our first camp, the last day, and Chris Finch got us all together, and he said, you know, I just want to thank everybody, you know, you guys got along so well, everybody had such a good time, and he said, if this was a group of all-American players, you know, that's, that would have never happened. Everybody would have been, guys would have been arguing, guys would have been battling for time. Some guys would have not been, not, not, wouldn't have got along. But all of you guys got along so well, and it was such a joy to coach all of you. And, and I think that was, that was just from the beginning, that, that's what it was. Everybody got along so well. I became really close with Drew pretty much immediately, Sullivan. Um, we found out we were born on the on the same day, same year. We called each other twin. We're we're, we're uh, we don't talk as much anymore now that I'm, now that I'm back in LA. But 
we're still very close vets. Obviously, you know, he's, he's a clown and a funny guy. We got along really well. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, some of the guards. Nate, I talk to sometimes. He's coaching. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was kind of amazing how well everybody got along. I've never been on a team like that or training camp or anything. Going back to high school where guys got along as well as they did really almost the entire time I played with GB. Yeah. So then when you, uh, you were then retur- you would have returned, so you're, basically your coach didn't let you play because he didn't think the GB thing was a serious, a serious thing. Right. So you went back to Spain that, for that season, uh, I'm assuming with then an eye on the, the 2008 uh, qualifiers. You know, had, had you, like, what was the agreement with your coach? Had he said, okay, you know, if, if uh, after this season was your contract up and then you were able then you were able to play for Great Britain or, or was it a case of you know you spoke with him and he was like uh, if this GB program thing is still around next year then, then it's okay like kind of uh, yeah like how are you approaching the, the next summer and trying to make yourself available uh, to be able to play for the team yeah well my, I mean my contract was up right and I made sure not to sign with anybody until until after playing with GB I mean it, it was it was something I thought about that whole year um between 2007 and 2008 was something I really wanted to do. I mean, it's amazing now to think that that's 10, 10, 10 years ago. But yeah. um, So I didn't sign with anybody purposely because I, I, you know, I didn't want any problems and I really wanted to play with the GB team, um, which was, you know, we, which was great. I mean, I think 2008, I, I had so much fun and I, I, I was kind of, again, the last person to make the team, 12th man, and I, I worked my way up. There were injuries, and I eventually became a starter as we played the qualifiers. And, I mean, I think I played probably some of my best basketball in my career in some of those some of those uh, kind of warm-up games to, to, to the qualifying and qualifying games just because I was having so much fun and really enjoying it. It was so professional and surrounded by so many good players. And I actually ended up getting hurt kind of the, at the end of the qualifiers. And, and ended up staying in London to rehab after after we qualified, and, that, and then that's when I signed with Leicester the first time back in the, I guess it must have been January of 2009. Uh, so how difficult is that balance between, uh, you know, wanting to represent your national team, uh, but then making sure that you're okay, um, you know, during the season for the for your your sort of your day job, your 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 regular club contract. You know, we see. Even with the GB teams now, there's always this stuff about, you know, a lot of guys, when they're playing for GB, still aren't signed. And some guys, for, the, for maybe the guys that don't have as much exposure, <clears throat> it's a great exposure opportunity if they have a solid, if they have a solid campaign with GB. It's going to help them get looks. But for others, uh, you know, they'll run into problems with their club um, who don't want them to play for the national team because of, of risk of injury and all that kind of stuff. Like, how difficult is that, was that for you, like balancing uh, the two between playing, playing for your country and, and playing for your club? Yeah, it's really difficult. I mean, being unsigned, it, it's it's a great opportunity to be seen if you're unsigned. Um, but also then there's the risk of injury or there's the risk that you're not going to get the minutes you want and you're still going to be in the same situation. Um, and then, of course, if you're signed with a team, uh, they might not want you to play. Or by the time you get back to the team, they, they've moved on and they've signed somebody else and now you're not playing as much or they, or they want to cut you. I mean... You know, European basketball is ruthless, man. I mean, it really is. And, I mean, one of the issues is just the scheduling because by the time you're finished with GB, 
uh, you know, you're you're in full swing with the with the club season, and a lot of coaches they just don't like that. They're so worried about their job. They know if they lose the first two or three games, they're gonna get fired. So, um, and that was at a time when they stopped the the international breaks during the season. So everything was 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 in seven weeks, six weeks during the that was the international season. But for me, I loved it. That was my favorite part of the year. So it, it didn't really matter for me. You know, I think. I had kind of given up this notion that I, you know, make a ton of money and be a, be a great European player. You know, I was I was pretty satisfied to be, you know, a, a decent European player and then get to play with GB. That to me, it was such a satisfying experience and worth the risk to try and get to 2012. That I was that I was happy to keep going. Did you find playing for Great Britain ever affected um, your ability to get a? Professional contract? Did it affect any negotiations that you're having with teams and stuff? Well, yeah, it definitely affected because two summers in a row I got hurt playing with GP. So I missed 2008. I missed the whole, you know, when we finished in September, I couldn't play until January. And the following year was the same thing. I I got hurt, uh, messed up my my, uh, tore ligament (laughs) in my foot, and then I couldn't play until January. And then I had lingering issues with that almost the whole season. So that, that was another huge risk. Um, and then of course, if you're not signed, you're not getting paid. You're just, you're just hanging out without a job. So, well, yeah, there, there was a huge inherent risk with it. Um, I, you know, look at, yeah, go, go, ahead, go ahead. I was going to say those, those periods, those periods when you're not getting paid, uh, like how, how difficult is that? You know, do you have to make sure that when you are getting paid that you make, that you've got a kind of, um, you know, fun saved up for, for in case of injury, like, you know, how do you have to approach the, the sort of the financial and, and injury planning side of, of being a professional basketball player? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard at first, obviously, you're young, you're going there playing, you're making some money, you want to like go out and spend your money, right? It's, it's the same you see with these young NBA guys now. Not that we're making NBA money by any stretch, right? But I, yeah, you have to learn to, to save some money and put aside something um, in case you're not signed early on, in case you have to get through the first few months before you're playing. I mean, it's difficult. It's very volatile. You know, you, you just never really know sometimes when you're going to be signed. Sometimes you get you could get cut during the year, and they'll give you a little bit of money, and then you're not signed for a couple months. Um, I think one year with GB, I got insurance money. Which, which was good, yeah. which helped a lot. But, yeah, it's really difficult, man. I mean, playing European basketball, if you're not playing in the top leagues, can be tough. I mean, you're never – you always feel like you're walking on eggshells a little bit because you're never really sure. You know, the job security is so bad. I, I guess as well that there isn't uh... – you know, like I know, you know, in the NBA, when when the when the guys get drafted, they'll have a kind of like initiation program where you have guys giving lectures and talking about the perils of of, uh, of being a professional basketball player and you know the financial side of things and the women side of things. And I guess in Europe, it's completely different. Where you don't, well, I would assume that there isn't anyone that's kind of providing you with guidance. You just have to work it out for yourself or try and find some veterans on whatever team you sign for to to kind of show you the way. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're not making NBA money, and, you know, there aren't, like, groupies waiting for us at the hotel <laughs> on a way game. Like, it's not really like that for us. It's pretty, 
it's a, it's a very different experience. But yeah, you, you kind of have to figure it out. And I, you know, I noticed pretty early on, you know, guys that, you know, for, if you're playing in Spain, guys that aren't from that country that are from the States or from England or for whatever, it's, it's a, it's a difficult adjustment. It really is. I mean, even something as simple as the food, right? Yeah. The foods can be different than what you're used to. You have to get used to that. Just the, the rhythm of life, the, you know, everything is so different and you have to prepare yourself. And so many guys just can't adjust and they end up struggling on the court. They end up getting homesick. They have to go home. They, they don't play as well as they can. You know, they, they struggle dealing with the culture. I mean, there's it's so many pitfalls that you have to try and overcome to have a somewhat successful career. So you always feel, I mean, as a European player, you kind of always feel like you're in this state of like fight or flight, you know. It's very difficult to just feel comfortable and say, okay, this place is, this city is good. I can let my guard down. I can, you know, I, I don't have to worry about getting cut. I don't have to worry about uh, the coach getting fired and having a crazy coach. I don't have to worry that if I, if I get hurt, you know, I'm not going to have a job for a long time. I'm not going to have any income. I mean, it's very difficult to get to that point where you can really let your guard down. I think there's some guys, when they when they find a situation they like, they end up staying as long as they can. But you have to remember, most guys, you're signing your contracts that are, you know, partially guaranteed. It's it's tough. I feel like as well that, you know, that there is, I mean, I know it's generalization, but a lot of Americans have never left, haven't haven't ever left America. So the the culture shock is a lot bigger than it is for you know another European going to play in another European country. Um, oh, hundred. I mean, this, I I could tell you a story. I, I played with a guy my first year. We lived two hours from Paris in France. He would drive three times a week from our town to Paris to go to the only KFC in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> so that he could have, so that he could get his his KFC fix and then drive back. I mean, stuff like that. Like the, the adjustment is, is is so difficult. I also think feel that like uh, on some level, there's a a lot of um, sort of import players that are just not open to the culture either. So they they they're not even going to go out and explore the city. They don't even want to. They just want to stand there and play video games, uh, you know, and Skype back home. Like I feel like you know, from what I know of you and and kind of the stuff that I've I've read. You embraced the the new culture a lot more than than maybe other players did. Yeah, I mean, it, for me, it was exciting. Like that was that was why I wanted to play in Europe. Was it was like a, a I was almost like I was being paid in like this cultural currency. You know, I was I, I got to learn about these other places and learn the language and 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 date women from that country and you know eat the food. Like it was exciting for me. And I remember, you know, my first year I played with these guys, two American guys. They were both 35, had played all over. One of them played in the NBA for a little while. And they told me, you know, the guys, the, you'll see so many Americans come here with so much talent. And the difference is they just can't adjust, you know. And if, if they're not willing to adjust and kind of open up and, and, and learn about the place and learn about the culture, you're not going to last, you know, nine, ten months in a place. It's just going to start to eat you up because – you're gonna get you're gonna get homesick. You're not gonna know what to do. And they said you know, one of the hardest adjustments is simply food. As simple as that sounds. Yeah. How how did you find the food? I loved it, man. It was fun. You know, you I was in France. You go to the grocery store and you, there's like the cheese section and all this like crazy smelly cheese and you know they're teaching me about it and going out and trying new dishes. Man, I mean it was fun, man. It was that to me the like cultural stuff. That was way more fun than, 
than than than, than the basketball. As much as I love the basketball, you know, the basketball was it be, it becomes a job. You know, you have to really treat it as such. But all the other stuff was so much fun, man. I I mean, now that I'm back home in, in California. I, I just miss it so much living in Europe and, and experience all the cultural stuff. And they give you a car, an apartment. Like, yeah. I had time off. I'm in my car. I'm I'm gonna go drive. I'm gonna go drive two hours to the next city. Go check it out. See what it's like. I mean, it was it was so much fun. Did you spend time trying to learn the languages of each country that you're playing in? Uh, yep. I speak I speak French. You know, it's, it's a cliche. Like I had a I had a French girlfriend when I was living there who lived with me for a couple of years who didn't speak English. So I just walk and we'd go out. I'd take my dictionary with me. I'd have to look up all the words. You know, this is before smartphones. So I, I would just, you know, every word I'd have to go s- scroll through the dictionary to try and look it up. So that's how I learned French. By the time I left, I was, I was pretty fluent. Um, and then Spanish, I learned a, a decent amount of Spanish. Yeah. Not, not fluent, but I, I can get by. So jumping back to GB then. Um, yeah. The 2008 qualifiers, uh, so you were playing against, I think it's Israel, Bosnia, and Czech Republic. Um, right. What are your memories? Like, I'm pretty sure that uh, at that time, Luau and, and Pops were both pretty dominant um, for the GB sides. Kind of, yeah, like, what, what are your memories of that, that qualifying campaign with an eye to Eurobasket 2009? Yeah, I mean, we didn't really, I don't, I don't, it's a, we didn't really know what to expect. You know, we didn't know how good these other countries were. We didn't know how good we'd be. That was the first time we were in 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 Group A. You know, we were we were what do you call it? Group B before that. Yeah. So, I think we played at Israel our first game, um, and we had a pretty good game. You know, we we lost the game, but we kind of felt like. You know we're gonna have a chance to win to win this group, um, and then we played Czech Republic at home at the O2, had a really good crowd, and they had uh, I think Yuri Welsh. Do you remember him? Yeah. Who played for the Boston Celtics, played in the NBA for a while. You know, then we had Luau. We felt like we could match up with them. Man, and we were so good that game. We were just sprinting up and down the court. We ran them to death. Um, you know, we had so much athleticism with 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 Luau and Pops and you know and, and, and Drew and, and Nate was was on fire that game. And I think I, we probably won by like 15, 20 points. I remember there was they put up a zone, they couldn't handle us. We ran some play and I threw it up top to Luau for, for a lob for a dunk. And the place went crazy, man. And it was it was just such an amazing experience. My family was there, and we went out and ate afterwards. And I just – can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, I've got you. I don't know what happened there. Okay. Um, Sorry about that. It's okay. Uh, carry on. You said it was an amazing experience. You went out with your family uh, afterwards. You won by – yeah, you ended up winning by 19. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think – and then at that time, we were like, well, we've got, we've got something special here. We've got a really good team. Um, I think we beat Bosnia at home. Maybe uh, I can't remember the the exact order. Yeah, but was, we we Bosnia next, and then Israel at home in Liverpool, and then Czech Republic again away, and and then Bosnia away to finish. Um, so okay, so it was Bosnia and Sheffield? Is that right? Uh, no, Bosnia. Hang on a minute. Let me have a look at this. So you after the after the O two game. 
Um, yeah. You then had Bosnia at the NIA in Birmingham, uh, where Deng had 29. And then you played Israel in Liverpool. Um, Pops okay. had 22 and 11. And then the Czech Republic away. Uh, and finally, Bosnia away as well. And that was the last game of the campaign. Um, yeah, like playing at the O2, like what was that like? You know, that, that happened a couple of times for Great Britain um, in the inter- yeah, well, it's up until today. It's, I think it's only happened a couple of times. I remember going to a game against, there was a tournament there once, which I, I assume was a. Right. Uh, yeah, like, but it hasn't happened a lot. Like, kind of, uh, the, it says the official attendance was 7,000. Um, but yeah, well, I assume like if you know if that was your that was your first your first home game, was that an expectation from that point? They're like, oh, every game's going to be in a massive arena like this, and <laughs> um, yeah, kind of. What are your memories of it? Yeah, I mean, I was actually really impressed that they that they were able to pull that off. I mean, um, whoever set that up, so. Yeah, I did. I did. You know, at the time, I probably did think like, man, this is this is what it's going to be like. We're going to play in front of these huge crowds, and the British public's going to be really into it. Um, which wasn't always the case. I mean, you know, you 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 spent so much time trying to get people into British basketball. Um, but yeah, there was a little bit of this like DIY quality at that time. You know, like this do-it-yourself kind of. We were all. Everybody's trying to figure it out, our marketing team, you know, our sponsors, and nobody's really sure, like, how to make it all come together because there just wasn't that that, that big built-in built in fan base. Um, so we were trying to, you know, we played different places, Birmingham. I remember we played some, in 2009, we played in Newcastle and Sheffield, played all over the country trying to get people into it. Um, yeah, I think what I really remember, though, is just that, the, the team, the camaraderie. We played in Liverpool that year against Israel, and then we all went out that night, and it was just such a fun experience. You know, everybody got along so well. We were out till I don't know four in the morning or something. It was just such a good time, and I think playing for Chris Finch was good because he, you know, he treated us like the adults. We could, we could kind of do what what we wanted as long as we were. Um, everybody was was kind of playing for the team and and, and ready for the next game. What was your relationship like with Finch? Yeah, I mean, I, I like I like Finch. You know, Finch, um, I think for me personally, he was great for me. He gave me an opportunity to play, um, you know, with some of my best experience playing basketball. I was playing for him. So I, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, he, 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 he could be a bit difficult sometimes. I, I think some guys, he, he rubbed them the, the wrong way, the way he would sometimes – talk he was so intense all the time you know every practice was such an such so intense which i think some people probably weren't that used to um but i really respected him you know he really was he had this eye the whole time on 2012 you know he knew all the, the whole we were going to get there we were going to find a way to 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 you know have the international basketball community respect us um and that's something i, I remember he, it was really important that he got he wanted the international basketball community to kind of respect British basketball, not just by us winning games, but the way that we played, you know, that we, that we were, it was like an aesthetically pleasing type of basketball, um, which I think we all kind of bought into after a while. So one of the, 
one of the things I really enjoyed on your on your blog, which I have to link to in the show notes, um, was this kind of exploration of you uh, with British people and kind of their knowledge of basketball. You went out on the street and you actually interviewed um, a few different people, asking <laughs> them kind of what their knowledge is of of, uh, of of basketball in the UK and whether they can name any players and stuff, uh, assuming that they had no idea that you were one of the players. Um, kind of, you know, coming over from you know having having grown up in America and and uh, and then coming to, to the UK, did it shock you just how much of a lit, how much uh, or how little of a British cult, culture there was around basketball? Uh, and obviously, I mean, I assume it, it interested you so much that you had to go out and speak to people about it. Kind of, yeah. What, what are your memories of that? Yeah, I, I think it shocked me not because I grew up in America, but because I, I had played in Europe for a while, and pretty much all over Europe there was there was a pretty big basketball fan base that was really into it so to come to britain where it was just you know some people didn't even know the basics of what basketball was you know i remember on that video interviewing a guy and ranking the 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 top british sports and i think he had you know darts above basketball and um i don't know what else you know right like it was so far down the list badminton was above basketball you know it was so far down the list that it was almost irrelevant and i you know we were fighting against that all the time was like to be relevant on some sense but the funny thing was being there was the people who are into basketball are really really into basketball right like it's this it's almost like this secret society where everybody all the the people in, in britain who are into basketball they know all the stats they know all the players they stay up till four in the morning to stream it online you know it's it's there's there is this like rabid small base. It's it's just trying to get the the, the everyday person to, to buy into it on some level. What do you think the challenges were? Um, you know, for, from a media standpoint for the for the GB program to try and get that. I mean, obviously there's two there's two parts to it because there's sort of an education piece to it as well, where it's where it's not just trying to um, profile the players and kind of make them stars, but also just trying to get people to know what basketball is. Um, and is there any sort of stories or difficulties that, that stick out where, I don't know whether you were interviewed by a, by a mainstream uh, press outlet and, and maybe... Yeah, well, yeah, go on. Yeah, I, I remember, man, because I, I, think, I think after 2008, I got hurt. So I was in London just rehabbing, living with family. And our marketing team at the time invited me to some marketing meetings to try and figure out how to market GB. And I, I remember being in those meetings and... It was really difficult for them because on one hand, they wanted to make it like this like entertainment value, almost like Disneyland-esque, you know, basketball, this this new cool thing that fans can come to, you know, right, yeah. without trying to alienate their base fans. And then, you know, on the other hand, trying to make it this serious endeavor, the national team getting ready for 2012, they had a really hard time trying to figure out that sweet spot. Um so, man, I don't know what the answer, you know, you, you came along and, and tried to make it, you know, tried to try to help make it bigger and get people into it and make it fun. Um, but it's really it's was really difficult. You know, I, I got kind of into it at the time trying to build knowledge of GB. I remember uh, was, I had a meeting with Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson's office with some people there trying to talk about getting more. Um, funding for, um, you know, basketball 
outdoor basketball or indoor basketball or get rid of the fees for, for low-income people so they could play. I mean, all that stuff was so difficult. You know, it was almost seen as, as, a, as, a, as a, you know, in America, basketball is so popular because it's so cheap to play. Anybody can play. You just show up. There's courts everywhere. You, all you need is a basketball. Or in Britain, it's just not like that. It's yeah. just not in the consciousness and in the same level. And trying to fight that battle it sometimes just felt like a losing battle, a battle you're never going to win, you know. And some of that is star power, as you said. Some of that is, you know, Luau Deng was the best British player, but he's on it, you know, three in the morning in, in Britain. And he could walk down the street in London. I remember when he signed his contract for $12 million, he walked down the street in London and not a single person knew who he was, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It's, uh... I mean, I'd be curious now. Yeah, go on. Is, uh, how that how that's changed? I, I don't I don't think it has to be honest. Uh, I still think that yeah. you know I, I say to people all the time that obviously I, I I live and breathe it, so I'm around it all the time, and so it, I, it's very easy for me to get kind of caught in the bubble of thinking, oh, there's more people talking about it, but it's just or it's people talking about the positive improvements that are already within the bubble, and actually just like you did in that in that video and it just like I, I mean I remember for the Back British Basketball campaign in 2010 we did exactly the same thing where we went out on the street and we just spoke we spoke to the average person and just said oh you know what's your knowledge of, of the Great Britain basketball team and we even actually I remember we even spoke to we interviewed the GB under 20s and we said oh can you can you name some players from the senior team you know talk about the senior team they just had no idea and I still think it's, it's very much right. the same like if I was to go down to the middle of Oxford Street and grab you know twenty random people on a sunny day in the summer and ask them you know what their knowledge is of, of basketball in this country. I would I would be shocked if any of them could could name a GB player, could um, you know have any type of well even name a BBL team. Uh, it's completely out of the completely out of the mind of the public consciousness. Uh, and I and I think that that's always it's it's one of the most disappointing things about about what hasn't happened since 2012 where, you know, even in, right. the, in the research for this interview with you, like I even saw an interview with you where you're talking about, I really hope that sort of the Olympics can be the catalyst to, to, to help, um, you know, shine a light on the sport and, and provide it with more exposure. But it just, it hasn't happened in any way, shape or form. And I, I really don't think uh, media-wise, sort of public awareness-wise, it's in that much of a better position than, than pre-2012, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think at the time there was a little bit of this like trickle down philosophy, right? That if we get GB to be as good as we can, the senior team, really the men's senior team, because that's really what they were focusing on, that if they do well, um, then it's going to ignite this basketball revolution in the country and everybody's going to get into it. And of course, in 2012, the team didn't do that well. I guess we won a game. Um, and there wasn't this basketball revolution. There really wasn't a lot of planning for how do we make, how do we plan for the longevity, the long health of, of, of basketball, which was really disappointing at the time for all of us that had been there from the beginning that had put so much into it. I think we, we wanted to see basketball be successful long-term and, and I think it has on some levels, but probably not the way we we envisioned it at at, at the time. Yeah, I, I I always remember the the first time when I realized how much of a big deal uh, the Olympics could be was at the test mm -hmm. event the test event uh, that they did the the year before yeah. and I remember the first day because that was the, I'm pretty sure that was the first sports event that happened at the Olympic Park as well. 
and the amount of media that was there, like it just, and you know, I was used to going to, to going to GB games or, or BBL games or whatever, and pretty much normally being the only one, or there's two or three of us, and there was just TV mm. cameras everywhere, there was journalists everywhere, and you're just like, wow, this Olympic thing is, mm-hmm. this Olympics thing is a, is a really big opportunity. Um, but right. by, by that point, it was already too late. Like you could already see that there wasn't a plan in place to really um, capitalize on it or take advantage of it. And uh, yeah, it's one of the, I think, well, it should be one of the biggest regrets um, of the Federation is that, you know, the Olympics was a once in a lifetime opportunity and it's, it's definitely been completely missed. Uh, I don't know, you know, the legacy, the legacy from, from 2012 is, well, for basketball, it's pretty much the copper box, um, which, you know, was obviously a handball yeah. arena and, and now is being used by the Lions, but it still costs a ridiculous amount of money to, to hire out if, you know, if you were to come to London and we want to play some pickup, you know, going, booking the copper right. box probably wouldn't be an option. Um, and, and other than that, it's like, well, it's the fact that there is a GB program, I assume, because, you know, you could say that if, it, if there wasn't the Olympics, the senior team might not have been brought back um, or rejuvenated. So, I, you know, but in terms of the, you know, the bigger picture and the growth of the sport, I really don't think it has done the things that it could have done or, or I would like to have seen it done anyway. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's sad. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I was... Go on. You're there on the ground, like you know, the, the development of the players. Like, are we, are we getting the best talent? Are we? I mean, when I remember when I was when I was in Britain, like if, if you were any good when you were, you know, fifteen, sixteen, you need to go to America or you need to go to Spain. You yeah. know, you needed to get out of Britain to become a better player. So I mean, that's I mean, yeah, that's, I, I don't. That's still, I, that's still the case. They, like in terms, I mean, that's the yeah. case. That's the case in terms of that's what the aspiration of of the player is. Like any kid that you speak to, if they're if they're any good, it's like yeah. Well, even if the ones that aren't any good, it's like the the dream is to is to leave the country as soon as possible, and that's you know a massive part of the problem. Um, and I don't think I don't think necessarily that uh, players need to leave as early as they used to. Um, and actually, in a lot of cases now, there are many players that are staying in the country till eighteen, nineteen years old and playing at academies. Um, you know, Barking Abbey, City of London Academy, like all these, all these places that are producing talent and then making the jump straight to, straight to college. Whereas I think years back, uh, kids were trying to get to high school and trying to leave earlier. Um, well, I think there's enough kids now that haven't done that, that have kind of proven that you don't necessarily need to leave when you're 15, 16 to still be able to get a scholarship to college. Uh, but it's still very much the aspiration. Um, and there's just a complete lack mm. of education about it. Uh, and kind of letting these kids know what their options are and the options that are available to them. So, yeah, it's, um, it's an ongoing challenge for sure. Uh, until, until we have the best British players at every age group you know, playing in the UK, I, I think the game will continue to suffer because you know, it has an effect on... It has this sort of rippling effect on, on everyone else, right? That uh, for the kids coming up, all of a sudden, they don't know, they don't know what a good player looks like because all the best players are abroad. So they get this kind of full sense of like, that they're good when actually they have, they have no idea because um, they're not facing that competition. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. The, I'm aware of time here. So kind of the, I guess the... It's man, if you want to... Okay, so, so kind of, yeah, carry on the, sort of the, GB, the GB pathway uh, for you. After the, the Eurobasket is, is obviously the thing I would love to talk about. Um, the game in particular that... Uh, you actually wrote up on your blog. I remember you writing up on your blog and, and I ended up producing a video around it. it was the game against Spain. Um, 
can you talk about your memories of the game against Spain and, and maybe for people that, that don't know what happened, kind of uh, yeah, talk about what happened uh, and that game in particular. Oh, man, that was like nearly the – it actually was in the newspaper the next day, nearly the biggest upset in basketball history or Eurobasket history. You know, we played against Spain, I guess, the second game of 2009 Eurobasket. This is our first Eurobasket. We were in the group of deaths, Spain, Serbia, Slovenia. Um, and this, of course, was Spain when they were at their peak. They had just won the – the Basketball World Cup, they were the Gasol brothers at, at their best, you know, Ricky Rubio and Jose Calderon, I think, was on that team, and uh, a man, who else? Rudy Fernandez, um, Garbajosa, I mean, man, these guys were just studs. So they were looking at us like, they're going to kill us. So we we were playing in the game, I think either, I think it was Luau wasn't playing, right? Was it Luau or Pops? Uh, one of those yeah you were shorthanded for sure we were shorthanded one of those two wasn't playing and then the other one somehow got in foul trouble or something got benched and we were down probably about 10 in the fourth quarter and he went small ball it was you know me Jared Hart and Lindsley I think ranking maybe I'd come out I can't remember man it was just all a bunch of short you know six foot two guys (laughs) and we just went we were just on fire um, and all of a sudden came storming back. We took the lead with about two and a half minutes to go. Uh, maybe even went up four. And, uh, and I mean, you could feel like on the court, on the bench, we were feeling like this is incredible. Like this is going to be the biggest moment of our lives, beating Spain, who must have been the best team in the world at the time because they had beat, just beat the U.S. the summer before. That this is, you know, this is this is incredible coming from – two years ago, not even being in Europe Division A, right? Yeah. So I think in the end, uh, about a minute to go, we were we were down one with a chance to win, and uh, they lost the ball, some crazy play, and Pau Gasol stepped out and, and, and hit a three-pointer. This is back when he didn't shoot at all, kind of his only three-pointer probably at the tournament. Um, so they went up by four, and they ended up, they ended up winning the game. I think I, I don't know how many points, four or five points. And it was, man, it was just, you know, from going from almost this is the biggest upset of our lives, the biggest moment of our lives to, to, to losing the game was pretty tough. But we felt, I mean, we felt like we had we had really proved something to a lot of people. Um, and we, we didn't win a game in that tournament. We lost all three games to three really good teams. Um, but we felt like we had proved something. We proved that we could play we could put together this 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 group and and compete with the best so i think it was a really you know you hate to say it was a moral victory but man it was it was more than a moral victory like it was a really satisfying experience to, to, to stand up to, to the best team in the world Did, in terms of the morale uh, of the group at that Eurobasket, um you know you said that originally when you joined there was all this kind of optimism and excitement and you know after the after the qualifying campaign you you felt like you got a chance of being really good. Like knowing that you're in the group of death, when you went into that Eurobasket, what was the expectation amongst you guys? Was it like, let's just see whether we can upset someone and pick up a win or two, or was it like, you know, I feel like we, if we do everything right, we actually have a legitimate shot of it at getting out the group, or yeah, kind of what was the, the the sort of the group mindset of the team? Oh, 
I mean, expectations were none, man. I mean, we really, I don't think any of us really expected to win a game, honestly. Yeah. There wasn't really, I mean, I think Finch maybe mentioned, hey, you know, we got to try and win this game. If we win one game, we might be able to get out of the group. You know, coaches have to say those types of things, but none, none of us had any expectations of doing well. We, we, I mean, we were under no illusions. We were playing against Serbia, who ended up getting the silver medal in the tournament. Spain won the gold. And the other team in the group, uh, Slovenia won, I think they won, They finished fourth, right? Yeah. So yeah. We, were, we, we were literally playing against three of the best teams in Europe. And for us, who had never been in any tournament, anything like this, um, we didn't really have, we, you know, we knew we, we probably weren't going to win a game. But I think for us to play as well as we did, particularly in the first two games and, and have a good showing, I think we were really, we were really proud of ourselves, honestly. You know, for a team that was zero and three, we probably felt as good as we could about ourselves as as possible. Was there um, after the Spain game? I mean, at this point, so two thousand nine, I was kind of just starting up, uh, getting interested in in the British game. So I, I I definitely I remember vaguely kind of watching some games on Eurobasket uh, at Eurobasket, but not kind of not really having a clue about anything that was going on and who the players were and stuff. But um, <clears throat> after that Spain game, what was the well? Was there any media interest? Do you remember uh, coverage that I don't know whether people spoke about coverage back home in England? Um, had anyone picked up the story, or, or do you feel like you were still very much um, in the basketball media outback, <laughs> not getting any love from from back home? Yeah, no, we we still were not getting any love from back home. I mean, that's the thing is. It, even if we won that game, and I don't think anybody would really understand the importance. No, nobody knows who Pau Gasol is, right? Nobody knows who Marcus Gasol and Ricky Rubio were at the time, you know? Yeah. So there, there wasn't really any significance. There was one uh, one little article I know on the BBC that Rob wrote, and I think we had a our you know all the countries there had their traveling contingent of fans. I think we had about six people who came along with us, <laughs> who who were like truest British fans. You know, they they after the games they go get beers with us because. I mean, they were pretty much a part of the team if you're willing to travel to Poland for a tournament that nobody else cares about, right? So, yeah. yeah, it was really, really, really difficult to get anybody interested, you know, and this was still three years before the Olympics. Um, and I think probably that was that was the frustrating thing to kind of feel like it didn't feel like we were, we were really being appreciated. Yeah. So after, after Eurobasket... Um you know, I've seen a few interviews where kind of it's like you, your career was, and I think you even said at the start of this uh, conversation that you, your career continued and you can carry on playing basically with an eye on the Olympics. Um, and that was kind of your, your guiding star, so to speak. Um, how, you know, how frustrating was it for you in the end, uh, you know, not making that Olympic squad and, and kind of bowing out uh, without that sort of final, the final swan song that you had hoped for? Yeah, it was really tough. You know, it was really t- I started, it's like I, I got, I started getting old really quick. You know, I got hurt after 2008 GB. I got hurt after 2009. Um, 2010, I played. And then in my club season, I, you know, I, I had a lot of injuries. Um, you know, I just felt like I started to hobble towards the finish line. And I kind of knew probably at the end of 2010, this probably isn't going to happen, you know. Yeah. It was just it was so difficult for me to kind of you know the back to back games that you that we play in in, in 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 a tournament were just becoming so difficult for me. 
Um, so yeah, 2011, uh, I played and I didn't, you know, I didn't play very well with the team in camp and I ended up getting cut in 2011 and it was hard, man. It was really hard. I felt, I felt, um, you know, to kind of have this eye on this goal and not be able to achieve it. I, I, I was down for a long time, you know, I was down for, for a long time. It was difficult for me to watch TV games that summer. Um, but, you know, I ended up getting to work in the Olympics as like a color commentator, which was great. And just, you know, I spent some time with Dan and, and, and Nate and Drew, uh, after some of their games and just to see how excited they were and to, to watch those guys that I had, you know, sweated with and, um, battled with to, to, to walk around the stadium, um, before the Olympics, man, that just made me so incredibly proud. I was just so proud of, 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 of everybody. Um, so, you know, I, I, I came to peace with it and was just really, really, you know, it's kind of one of those, sounds like a corny story where you're like, well, it's not really the goal. It's the journey, right? That's the important thing. But it really was like, I, I just had such a great time playing with GB in those days. And that was, it was kind of this really romantic time. Now, when I look back at it, this, this, this kind of trying to figure out what GB basketball was trying to prove people wrong, trying to, trying to beat these giants, giant countries on, on during these big tournaments. It was, it was a really great time. For sure, I even get I even get nostalgic when I think about um, sort of the the early days of, of me kind of covering GB and and uh, yeah, it was a I do feel like it was a special time um, and yeah, you obviously played a, a huge part in that. So right, t- timing wise, um, I guess uh, start looking at wrapping up. I just I think um, good place to leave it to kind of ask like what's what's next for you? What do you what do you see yourself doing in the foreseeable future? Um, what your what are your goals, I guess, uh, moving forward? Yeah, good question. I mean, I'm doing a lot of sports writing, and I'm kind of trying to a little bit move out of that world into maybe doing maybe doing some documentaries, some sport docs, and um, yeah, I'm kind of kind of trying to move into a different career field a little bit, um, little little bit up in the air, but. Um, Still going to be doing a lot of writing, a lot of journalism, probably moving away from sports and just doing, I think, in, in right now in America with the, with the Trump years, I kind of, you want to feel like you're doing something yeah. meaningful rather than just kind of writing about whatever game just happened. But yeah, I get back to England a lot. I've been back about four times this year, um, stay in touch with some of those guys. But yeah, I think that's, that's kind of what I'm doing next. The book that you wrote, is there any plans to ever publish that? It's a good question, man. It's just kind of in a drawer. Like, I, at some point, I need to pull it out and look at it and see if it's any good. Um, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to just kind of publish it at some time, some point. I don't really have any plans to. I haven't really, never really showed it to anybody, but yeah. I think it'd be fun. I think it'd be fun to publish. I think you should definitely there are do a lot that. of like Euro- European basketball books out there. So I think that'd be a, be, that'd be a great plan. I would definitely read it. Um, so yeah, cool. That's, cool, that's awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it's much appreciated. I know you're a busy, busy guy. So um, yeah, thank you so much. And, and hopefully we will uh, catch up for a part two at some point again in the future. Sounds good, man. Great talking to you. 
You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos, and more.